Hi everyone, I'm going to be reading to us from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Very serious reading we've got this evening to look at together. So let's uh, ask for God's help in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the warnings you give us. We thank you that this passage, although it has a very strong warning, contains more than that. It talks about Jesus's mission and his power. And there's so much in there actually for us to, uh, to hope in, to, to give us hope. Lord, please uh, touch our hearts, help us to heed the warning and also to receive peace knowing that Christ's mission was for us and for our good. So we ask for your help now as we turn to your word. Amen. Well, it's a serious text today, and uh, you probably remember that horrible situation in 2008 when an Austrian man was uh, taken by the police. He'd been holding his own daughter captive in his house for 24 years in the basement, a basement without windows, and he'd abused her during that time and even fathered children by her. The evil of that man is really quite, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? It's uh, distasteful, it's horrible. It's, he, he absolutely deserved to be imprisoned and for his daughter to be set free. And imagine that moment when the daughter did walk free. I imagine she'd have needed a great deal of care and counselling to get over the past, but that moment when she stepped out into the open air is a moment of freedom for her, and the police men and women who went into that house were nothing short of heroes. They were really the only hope of there being any light in that dark situation. They brought about the rescue. And in our Bible text for today, Jesus is very much like those policemen and women. He's begun an operation to free people imprisoned by evil forces for years and years. 
He's overpowered those evil forces. And like that evil man in Austria, they are now powerless to touch their former victims, to have any power over them whatsoever. And yet, imagine that situation. Imagine you've just turned up at the house and the police are there, but there are some bystanders. And some of those bystanders move forward and say, oh, the police are out of their minds. Why are they raiding this house? And the police have to explain what's going on. And as those bystanders see the rescue mission unfold, they get it. The police are able to say, look, this is what the mission is all about. But another group of bystanders shout abuse at the police and they're saying, oh, they're not the police at all. They're just like a gang of paedophiles who just want to prey on the people living in that house. They are evil. That's a pretty serious accusation against people who are doing what's right and bringing justice and freedom. That's why you see the signs in doctor's surgeries, don't you? And hospitals, abusive behavior towards our staff will not be tolerated. You cannot treat people who are doing what is good like that. And in our passage today, Jesus actually fixes up a sign just like that. Whoever blasphemes against or whoever abuses the Holy Spirit, who's on a good mission, will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. They will not be tolerated. So there's two, these two groups of bystanders and there's a raid going on on the house and Jesus is like the police in this picture. And I hope that scene helps you to picture what's going on here. And at the heart of the passage for this evening in Mark 3 is the question you might ask if you arrive at that house and you see the police cars, what's going on? And Jesus explains in a parable that he's on a house raid. So we'll look at that first. We'll look at the house raid and then we'll see the rescue itself taking place. And after that, we'll turn our attention to these two groups of bystanders. So first of all, the house raid. Jesus has been attracting crowds before this and he's been healing people. He's been driving out demons. And then in our passage for today, we read this, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. These are the abusive bystanders. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The strong man there is Satan again, who Jesus has been talking about before. And what should we think about Satan here? Who is this guy? He's this mysterious figure who lures people into his trap and he keeps them away from finding true freedom and fulfillment. He's the evil man, if you like, keeping prisoners in his basement. He's denying them the life in the open sunshine they should be living. 
So he's not a guy with a trident standing at the gates of hell. He's a seductive voice imprisoning us for something less than the life we were made for. And the good news is that Jesus has raided his house and he's tied him up and he's taken his possessions. Now, mixing metaphors slightly, because in the picture I was describing before, that awful situation, the, uh, the people were freed. The lady was freed from the basement. But here, Jesus goes into the house and he steals the strong man's possessions. The strong man's possessions here are those who are held captive. It's the people in the basement, if you like. And this event that Jesus is describing is described again in Revelation 20. If you remember, uh, if you're at the eschatology session that we did a couple of weeks back, Revelation 20, talking about the millennium. And it says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. This is a vision that John is seeing. So symbolically, this is representing something. He sees the dragon that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And again, symbolically, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that moment when Satan fell like lightning from heaven was our sunrise. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There's a famous words read at Christmas from Isaiah 9, which we'll come back to a little bit later on. Very significant text. It's like that woman seeing daylight for the first time in 25 years. The strong man, the evil man, has been bound. And the people in the basement have been set free. Jesus has the power to set you free. He has the power to give you true and eternal life. He has broken the power of the one who holds you down. So thank him for that. Trust in him and pray to him. Bring all of your problems to him and ask him to give you the eternal life that he is able to give, having bound that strong man, if you have not already done so. That's why he came, to set people free, to set you free from the power that separates you from God and places an hourglass over your life. Jesus has raided the house. And now let's witness together the rescue that takes place. The rescue in the uh, text that we've got here, the passage in Mark 3, seems a bit less dramatic than the raid. Mark 3 verses 32 onwards. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The point I want to make about this rescue is that it brings about a new belonging brings about a new family. I imagine the uh, woman rescued from Austria didn't want to go back to her previous family, of course, but I like to think that she found love and acceptance and friendship in new circles when she was free. And so when Jesus rescues a person, he rescues them for a new family. He rescues them to join the team. 
That's why he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. They're doing God's will. We can learn this from the text if they're with Jesus and they're with each other. And that's a good test to find out whether we're doing God's will or not. Are we with Jesus? Are we speaking to him in prayer? Are we listening to him through his word? Are we uh, spending time with him in the Bible? And of course, are, are we happy for people to know that we're with Jesus? Do people know that you're a Christian? And secondly, are you with his people? Are you an active part of a church? Now, I know I'm speaking to the committed congregation of Sunday at six, so I'm preaching to the choir here. But let's say I signed up to a gym and actually never went to the gym. I've signed on the dotted line, but I've never turned up there. In no meaningful way can I be said to be part of that gym. And if you call yourself a Christian and yet you never go to church, you never join with God's people, then you're at risk. You're at risk that it could be said that there is no meaningful way in which you truly belong to Christ. Because those people doing God's will are those who are with Jesus and those who are with his people. So we're doing God's will if we're those things. And Jesus points to those around him and says, these people uh, doing God's will are my brothers, my sisters and my mother. Now, if you're one of the ladies in the church old enough to be uh, the, the mother to someone who's 30 years old as Jesus was about this time, uh, he would see you and he would love you as a mother. I hope you actually find that quite special and quite touching. And of course, for all of us, he is uh, a brother. So we are his brothers and sisters. One of the most difficult things about moving house to a new area is of course you leave behind old friends but you can't really leave behind a brother or a sister because no matter how much time goes, no matter how little you keep in touch with them during the time you're away, they are still a brother or a sister. And this is the wonderful thing. When we're part of Jesus' family, we are always part of Jesus' family. He will always be our brother. So this is the rescue. God uh, Jesus breaks into the house. He's bound this strong man who keeps us captive. He's rescued us to be part of his family. And now let's turn our attention to these two groups of bystanders and see what's going on there. Remember, uh, we've got the confused bystanders who are watching the raid and they move forward and say the police are out of their minds. Why are they raiding this house? So let's see them in the passage in verse 21. And Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. If you ever have times where you think, ah, oh, the Christian faith is just seems too crazy to be true, then you're in good company because Jesus' own mother and his brothers were thinking this at the time. And what we know is that Mary, Jesus' mother, would believe and she would become a committed follower of Christ. And James, one of Jesus' brothers or half-brothers, of course, even went on to become a church leader, I think the head of the church in Jerusalem, and he gave his life for the Christian faith as a martyr about 30 years after this date. So some of the strongest Christians have been those who at times have said, it all just seems a bit too crazy to be true. 
So Jesus deals with this group of bystanders quite gently. When they turn up at the house, he just said, who are my mother and brothers? They're right here around me. He says enough to show that his mission is bigger than family ties, but he's not absolutely slamming them like he does the other group. There's still hope there. So if you're at that stage right now where you think maybe the Christian faith is just too crazy to be true, then don't give up on it just yet. Instead, think bigger. I mean, reality is pretty remarkable. Even the everyday is a miracle, isn't it? The fact that we're speaking to one another, or I'm speaking to you over the internet, and uh, we're engaging with that. I always, when I'm doing evangelism, I point to things around me, just cars driving around. There's so much order in the town, and I think it's a miracle. This is, reality is strange business. So let's think big. The Christian faith is not too crazy to be true. Now, another thing we could say from this is that resistance to Jesus came from people very close to him. It's his own family, and it comes just as his mission is building momentum. And as a church, of course, we want momentum, don't we? But are we ready for, with that momentum, to come opposition and to for opposition to come from places that are painfully close to us? Are we ready for the heartache that comes with momentum as a church? There'll be people who are close to us and we'll be disappointed by them, just as Jesus was here going about his father's business and his own family didn't get what he was about. That's the confused bystanders. And so there are a few lessons for us to learn from them. But now let's turn our attention to this best known part of the passage. This is the abusive bystanders, if you like, and the unforgivable sin. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. And I'll skip down to verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Now, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a bit of a difficult concept for us to get our head around. Um, the, the words in themselves are quite difficult to understand. What is blasphemy? What does it mean to blaspheme specifically the Holy Spirit? So the last words from the narrator there are really helpful for us to pin this down. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So it's not just refusing to believe. A, a lot of us did that at one point in our lives, didn't we? We don't believe that that is unforgivable. And neither is carrying on doing something that we know is wrong. That's not unforgivable, although, of course, we're on very dangerous territory if we do that. And neither is the unforgivable sin just carrying on not believing until the day that you die. That wouldn't make sense in the context because Jesus isn't talking here to people who are about to die. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is first of all, to have enough information to know that God is at work. These teachers of the law had that. They knew the scriptures, they'd seen Jesus at work. And secondly, to say that what the Holy Spirit is doing 
is an evil spirit at work. Now, we find it difficult to imagine a situation where that might ever happen. So you'll find if you uh, do a Google search for the unforgivable sin, people try to explain the sin in different ways. And largely, I think that comes from this view that it's so difficult to, to actually commit it. It's so unlikely to happen, particularly in our post-enlightenment age, where we don't really attribute anything to evil spirits. But I put it to you that even today, some people come dangerously close to committing this sin. If any of you know Philip Pullman's books or have seen the current BBC ad adaptation, His Dark Materials, you'll know that he uses fiction to send a message that is not a very subtle message, that the church and everything it stands for and its message is evil. And true good can be found in uncovering the truth for yourself and being free from what's called the magisterium. Now, it's worth watching that TV series to be a sort of an onlooker to see what he's saying and to see the message that's going out there. And actually, it's a good tip whenever you're watching a film just to ask yourself the question, if I had to say what this film says is the best good, the best virtue, um, what, what does it want me to copy? Um, then it gives you a good sense of the sort of position this film is coming from. And so uh, His Dark Materials TV series, not a film. If you ask the question, what is the greatest virtue? The greatest virtue is seeking the truth over against the magisterium, which portrays the church. And I'm not the one to judge whether Philip Pullman has committed the unforgivable sin or not. I think he, he's died now anyway, and um, he didn't repent as far as I know. So it's not for me to judge him. But he is coming dangerously close to attributing the work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit builds the church in this world to Satan, as he calls it evil and says that the greatest good is to uncover the evil that is the magisterium. Similarly, I think that Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens are on dangerous ground when they accuse God, particularly um, calling the work of God in the Old Testament just evil, and they use all sorts of horrible adjectives to describe it. They're on dangerous ground, and there is no coming back from that sin. We don't actually know whether the teachers of the law in Mark actually committed the sin. That's not for us to judge. And neither should we judge others today. But there is a warning here for us to heed. And perhaps most of all, for us to heed for ourselves. I know it's unlikely that we're, we're going to step this far, but it's easy to point the finger at others, isn't it? And not to just take heed ourselves. So let's not judge. Jesus told us, don't judge in case you are judged but let's take heed ourselves of this solemn warning. But as I conclude, as I finish, if you listen to Bernard's sermon this morning, you'll know that when a preacher says, as I finish, they're about to talk for another half an hour or an hour, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not. So as I conclude, let's not forget that this passage as a whole is more than just about the unforgivable sin. Uh, when we read the passage, our attention is always drawn to that particular aspect. And there's a really good reason for that. It's because as, as Christians, we know that there is no worse situation to be in than beyond forgiveness, and specifically beyond God's forgiveness. You can't hide from God. The thought is terrifying to be beyond his forgiveness. 
And many of us may have had moments where we're concerned we have committed the unforgivable sin. The Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote this about his father in 1846. How appalling for the man who, as a lad watching sheep on the Jutland Heath, suffering painfully, hungry and exhausted, once stood on a hill and cursed God, and the man was unable to forget it when he was 82 years old. He felt that he committed the unpardonable sin. But even for people who have done that, there is hope. I read from Isaiah 9 earlier, that's the Christmas text about the people walking in darkness. And we've become all too familiar with that passage. And particularly, we've become all too familiar with the bit that's read every Christmas, forgetting what comes before it and after it. What comes before it tells us a little bit about who these people were who were walking in darkness. Who were they? What, what were they doing? Let me tell you, this is the bit before Isaiah 9 verse 2. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look down towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Jesus's mission is our dawning sun. He said a few words before he warned about the unforgivable sin. And it's no accident that he says these words first, because they are why he came. They are at the very heart of his mission. Let's understand his mission. Let's understand the whole reason he walked on this earth and defeated the powers of darkness. Here it is in verse 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. I actually think the NIV translation here softens Jesus's words too much to make a comparison with what comes next. They say people can be forgiven, but something won't be forgiven. But the word can isn't there in the Greek, it's just a future tense verb. So here it is more literally. Truly I tell you, all kinds of sins and blasphemies which, with which people blaspheme will be forgiven. Jesus came for people who need forgiveness. He came for people who have things they are ashamed of, people who are carrying guilt. And what he says is, they will be forgiven. They will be. All kinds of sins, all kinds of blasphemies that people utter against God, they will be forgiven. So take your guilt to Jesus to deal with. He will forgive. That was his mission. 
And that is the mission of a good God. Let's pray and thank Jesus for what he's done for us. Lord Jesus, you issued a stern warning here that those who call your work a work of evil can never be forgiven. Oh Lord, may that never be us. May it never be those in our families, those amongst our friends. Lord, have mercy on us. But Lord Jesus, thank you that it is so serious because what God is doing, what Jesus is doing is so good. And you, you came to earth, Jesus, you came so that we could be released from the prison in which we were held, so that we could be forgiven. Our guilt and our shame could be taken away. And may we be so thankful for that rescue mission. Amen.